Well, good evening. Welcome to our continued study of the book of Acts. I'm glad you're here. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll just dive right into our study tonight. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your mercy and your grace. We're grateful that we live in a country where we can gather like this. I pray your blessings on our country. I pray your guidance for our country. I thank you for this community of believers here. I pray you would strengthen us by our study of your word, that it would go into our head and penetrate our heart and come out through our hands in this community. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here. Just make yourself comfortable. Uh, we, as you know, if you've been here, we take questions during class. If you'd like to text your questions into this number during the class period, we answer as many as we can. And Laura Fakes, my wife, consolidates those. We can't answer all the questions. We always get way more questions than we could answer in a class, but she does a great job of consolidating those and trying to ask the ones that are most seem on your mind. There are not many forums where we can interact like this and answer questions, so I'd love to answer your questions during class. Uh, some people have asked, by the way, do you ever plant questions? No, we never plant questions. <laughs> and secondly, do I know what she is going to ask? No. And that's why I'm really nice to her on Wednesdays. It's because I'm totally at her mercy. Actually, this is kind of an interesting story. Laura's been involved in our teaching ministry for a long time. But when I asked her about this job, I said, would you be willing to you know, spend most of the class just analyzing and pulling together questions? And, and I said, you know, I, I can't pay you anything to do this, but I will marry you if you will do it. And surprisingly, she thought a little bit, and then she said, are you sure you can't pay anything? <laughs> I said, no. And so we are married, and she is helping with this, so I really appreciate it. Uh, text your questions in. Love to answer those. And that, yes, thank you, Laura, for what you do. I appreciate that, and they'd appreciate it too. Uh, she did say, though, if you'll send your credit card with those questions, they're pretty much more likely to get asked. I just wanted to mention that to you. Just kidding. We are studying the book of Acts. We're going to take this whole semester to walk through it. And I think you've already seen there are some almost startling applications from the life of the early church and the early believers to modern times. There are more parallels than, than we expected so far. We've done the first five chapters of the book of Acts. And you've noticed in this first five chapters that... The story has largely been around, of course, the, after the post-resurrection, the Pentecost, and Peter and John figure prominently in this. Peter will continue to figure prominently as the leader, if you will, of the apostles for several chapters into Acts for uh, quite a few years. But what we've seen is an interesting pattern. You'll see a miracle which enables a message which leads to growth. And you've seen that cycle a couple of times. So you'll see God empowering the apostles to do miracles. That miracle really opens the door. Some of them are very symbolic, but they open the door for people to listen. Then you've seen what they were preaching. They're preaching largely Jesus the Messiah was crucified and is raised from the dead. The resurrection is central, absolutely central to the gospel message. In fact, it's interesting what's not in their sermons. So we've seen that pattern play itself out. As the church grows and this good news of the gospel resonates with people and all whom God has called become believers, it grows explosively. Two things happen during that explosive growth. One is the authorities take notice and you begin to see something that you're going to see all through scripture. 
particularly in the book of Acts, you're going to see the gospel interacting with the power structures of this world. In the early part of Acts, it's the believers interacting with Jewish authorities. So Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin once, warned and let go. Second time, and this was our last lesson, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're put into jail. This is a painting of the angel getting them out of jail. And instead of fleeing, what do they do? Go right back to preaching. This time, however, the Sanhedrin wants to kill them wants to execute them for their defiance in this message. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel intercedes and says, let's let this go. One of the reasons for that is the Sadducees, we talked about this in our last lesson, were very offended at the idea of the resurrection because they did not believe in a resurrection of the soul. They believed that the soul died with the body. Pharisees did. Consequently, they had a little less offense, a little less skin in this game. So Gamaliel intercedes and they are flogged and let go. They go back to preaching, and growth the growth continues. The other thing that happens out of explosive growth is that you tend to see problems, administrative problems. And so in this lesson, chapter 6 and 7, we're going to continue to see the theme in the church of beginning to see problems inside the church that come with the growth and continued persecution from outside the church. Those two dynamics are going to define the early church for quite a while. Well, our first passage opens in chapter 6. At this time in history, we're maybe about 37 A.D. here. It's very difficult to date this, but approximately 37 A.D., so just a little time after the beginning of the church. The church is probably about 20,000 believers at this point. That would be big in Oklahoma City. It was huge in Jerusalem. But as the church grew, you begin to see some difficulties in administering it. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples, all the believers together, and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will continue to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So I'd like to pause on this a little bit and give you an idea of some of the dynamics in the early church. What's happening here? Basically, the, uh, you saw the early church being of one heart and mind. They were meeting the needs of all the people. In Acts 2 and the end of Acts 4, you get these little frames that give you a, a brief insight into what the early community was like. One of the things they did was take care of the widows. A.T. Robertson, the uh, 20th century Greek scholar and theologian, has remarked that women and money are the occasion for the first trouble in the church. And that's pretty much what you see. I have no comment on that whatsoever. That's what he said. But it's interesting that you see that the very thing that made them strong, the taking care of one another, becomes a point of division amongst them. I'd like to look at two pieces of this, and the first is, I'd like to tell you the difference between the Greek Jews or Greek believers and the Hebrew or Hebraic Jews, Hebrew believers. And they're all Christians. At this point, everybody who's a Christian was a Jew. This is happening in Jerusalem. They were Jews before. And so they're all Jews, but now that they've become believers, they have different backgrounds. Let me show you. This is the world 
around first century era. And these are the major centers of Jewish settlements around the world. If you remember, almost 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonians scattered the Jews throughout what's now Iraq and Iran uh, into the Persian Empire at that time, so over to the east. When Alexander the Great came through a little over 300 years before the time of Christ, there was also a dispersion of the Jews, this time voluntary, and they moved back into the western parts where, the, where Alexander and the Greeks ruled. Alexandria, you'll see that city in Egypt, uh, Alexander the Great founded that in 331 BC, and it became a great center for learning, and there was a huge Jewish population there. The Jews migrated to that. So you see Jews all around the world. Those Jews grew up generation after generation. They didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. Their customs, even though their religion was the law of Moses, their customs became very much Hellenized or became Greek. And so you see them later in life, oftentimes retiring, if you will, back to Jerusalem to live out their lives. So in Jerusalem, you have Jews who grew up speaking technically Aramaic, but we'll just say Hebrew. They grew up speaking Hebrew, reading a Hebrew Bible, worshiping in their synagogues and at the temple in a set Jewish Hebrew kind of way. You have these Jews coming in from around the world who grew up, they don't speak Hebrew, they speak Greek. They have some different customs. They've done things a little different where they grew up. So they share a common religion, but they're ethnically a little bit different, and they're certainly a little different in both their language and their customs. And so the Grecian Jews, or the Hellen some of your translations will say the Hellenistic Jews or Hellenistic believers, are those who came from these different places around the world back to Jerusalem. The Hebrew Jews, or Hebrew believers, depending on your translation, are those that pretty much grew up in Israel. And so they become Christians. In the Jewish world, there was a kind of a social division there. The Hebrew Jews thought that the Hellenistic Jews were kind of liberal. In other words, they didn't think that they were as good a Jews as the people who grew up there. And so they treated them a little bit like second-class citizens. Well, when they came into the church, that, those social distinctions came with them, if you will. So, for example, the Hellenistic Jews didn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. They didn't read Hebrew. In the city of Alexandria, great city of learning, about 200 years before the time of Christ, the Jews there said, look, we can't even read our Bible anymore. Why don't we translate our Bible? from Hebrew into Greek. And they did, and you can still read that today if you read Greek, but that's still around today. That translation is called the Septuagint. It is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament, you'll see some of the New Testament writers quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament, sometimes quoting from the Hebrew version. So they're both in use just depending on what language you use. So they literally had a different Bible. It would be like... In our church, in a different part of our city, there's a, we have a Hispanic congregation called Crossings Comunidad, and their services are in Spanish, and their Bibles are not English. So we have a common faith, we're common believers, but we don't typically worship together because I don't understand their, uh, their services. That would be like what was happening here. They spoke a different language, read the same Bible, but in different languages. 
There also crept in with them, though, kind of a first-class, second-class Jew. You know, who's the better Jew? They also would typically take care of the widows in the Jewish synagogues, particularly the uh, orphans and the widows, and they had a, a weekly dole, basically, of either food or money, depending on where you were, as to what they would, uh, what they would do. And so they took care of the widows. But when they became Christians, now all of a sudden it became the Christians part. That's one thing I think that has an interesting implication for today. Because you look at that church, and at the same time in chapter 4 when it says all the believers were of one heart and one mind, here in chapter 6 you realize that when they came into the church, they didn't automatically lose their ethnic differences, social differences. You're actually going to see this get worse as Acts goes on. But right now, there's this tension between the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews. When they become Christians, you, you still see that tension. That's true today, too. When we come into the church, we still bring our biases, some of our prejudices with us. We bring the worldly attitudes and customs. We bring our cultural background. The church becomes very much a culturally, ethnically, uh, traditionally mixed group of people. And just as in those days, when that caused some tension among those different groups, it does now too. Now, idealistically, we think, well, wait a minute, why aren't all Christians truly behaving like brothers and sisters? One of the reasons for that is when we come to Christ and we become followers of Christ, justification happens right away. When we surrender our lives to Christ, when we trust Jesus Christ, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we are placed into a relationship, a right relationship with God. Our relationship is restored by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are put into a posture of acceptance with God. Sanctification, that is the Spirit's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, is not an instantaneous event. It does indeed take time as we live it out and we become more and more like Jesus Christ as we cooperate with the Spirit of God working inside of us. That's true then and it's true now. And that's why you can have believers, followers of Christ, who still struggle with some of these kinds of issues of prejudice or ethnic tension or differences. Now, those things become less and less, and you'll see that in the book of Acts as well. But that's something that happened in the early church, and it's something that happens to us now. We're justified together as believers. It's a process for us to be sanctified or made holy or become crafted into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what you see there. That's one of those lessons that was true then and is still true today. And that's not something that should discourage us. It should simply be a sign to us that we have growing to do. The more we grow towards Jesus Christ, the fewer our strife and distinctions will become. In fact, uh, this is something that we talk about in marriages a lot, is probably when people say, you know, what's the best thing I can do for my marriage? Some will say, well, you should read marriage books and work on your communication. You should get counseling and work on whatever issues you have. Those are all good things to do, but without doubt, the single best thing you can do for your marriage, for your family, really for all your relationships, is to be more devotedly pursuant to becoming like Jesus Christ because that is what brings us together in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. You're going to see that in Acts, but in the early church, there's some tensions there between the Jews that are, speak Greek 
and the Christians that speak Hebrew. Well, the second thing I want to focus on is, what is why is this centering around the widows? They, the Grecian Jews were complaining against the Hebrew Jews, who were apparently in charge of the distribution of food and money and helping those who were in need, that their widows, the widows of their uh, ethnic descent, were being overlooked. The idea of widows... Uh, becoming a, a flashpoint here is not surprising because in that culture, those were some of the most marginalized people. In other words, if you were a widow in that culture, there are no government safety net. If you don't have family to take care of you, you're literally destitute. Now think about it for a moment. If you grew up in Israel and you became a widow, you might have family there. If you moved there from one of these Hellenistic cities, from one of these Greek cities, you don't necessarily have a family structure there. And so if you become a widow, you could easily become very quickly in need. That appears to be what was happening in the early church, is there were a higher proportion of the widows from these Greek cities that did not have a support structure and were more dependent on the church. What they were seeing is they felt like there was a, a distinction this idea of the widows, by the way, is very, very much a covenantal issue in both Judaism and in Christianity. Here are just a couple of passages. In Deuteronomy, it talks about the idea of taking care of the alien. In other words, people who don't have a family system, they, they're not from here. Uh, the fatherless, of course, orphans and widows. In fact, uh, some of the law of Moses back in Deuteronomy 24, make a note of that if you want to follow up and read this, you'll see commands like this. When you harvest your fields, don't harvest the whole thing. Leave some for the fatherless, those who are aliens, in other words, those who aren't uh, ethnically there, they're visiting, and the widows. It says when you harvest your olive trees, leave some for the fatherless and the widows. When you harvest your grapes out of your vineyard, leave some for them. This was, the, this was a value in the Jewish law of Moses is this is we're going to take care of those who are most marginalized in society, those who can't take care of themselves. You see that carry over into the New Testament. You see James echoing this as a moral imperative for Christians as well. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and undefiled is to look after orphans and widows in their times of difficulty and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. So you see that thread of taking care of those who are most in need. So it's not surprising that the orphans and the widows would be the place where you will tend to see this kind of tension because the need was greatest there first. Let me pause and see if you have a question at this point. Yes. Um Going back a little bit in time, after the Pentecost, were the disciples able to continue speaking different languages, or was that still needed at this point in time? Yeah, good question. Was the speaking in different languages? I'm going to. We talked when we got that speaking in tongues. The Greek word for tongues can mean languages, and at that time, that miracle clearly is a miracle of being able to speak in intelligible languages that are miraculously understood by different people. That's the account in Acts question is, did that specific, we call them charismatic gifts or miraculous gift, did that continue? There is no particular evidence in the early part of the book of Acts that documents that the apostles were doing that. You will see instances of that phrase, speaking in tongues, on through the book of Acts, 
You'll certainly see it, for example, I referred you to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Deals, it's an area where Paul is dealing with some early believers about this issue of what we call charismatic gifts. You'll see that some manner of speaking in tongues, his argument whether at that time it's speaking in languages or it's some type of ecstatic utterance, meaning it is a spontaneous ecstatic expression that is not a human language. So there is some debate about what did speaking in tongues look like at different points in the church's history. There's no specific evidence that they were doing that regularly here. That does not mean that they were not. Again, when we talked about the miracles, both the healing of the lame man and the speaking in tongues, we noticed that they had a specific purpose. They served God's purpose at the time. Remember we talked about the day of Pentecost and the Tower of Babel and how Pentecost, the speaking in different languages, was an undoing of the Tower of Babel. It was an undoing of the scattering of humanity. God's making a point. He's more brilliant than we think. As you read it, you go, whoa, they're just layers of brilliance here of what God is doing. We talked about the lame man, the reason to heal this individual as the miracle that kicked off that discussion was because Peter wants to talk about physical healing being a metaphor for the spiritual, the cosmic spiritual healing that Jesus is doing. My point there is, and I know this is getting long-winded, but this is a really important point. Those charismatic gifts are for the service of God's purpose, not man's purpose. So if they were speaking in tongues, speaking in different languages, it was under the control of the Spirit to further the kingdom purpose. So... We don't know for sure whether they were or not because there's no specific evidence at this moment, but there's no particular reason to think that they weren't. If the occasion warranted it, then I suspect that it was happening. That's a good question. Okay, a couple of others that go back. Do we know who baptized Paul or when that happened? Do we know who baptized Paul? You are going to meet him next week. And we will talk about Paul's conversion. It was a little different than mine. Maybe it wasn't different than yours. But we're going to talk about that, and we'll just say that. Because next week, you're going to see this incredible transformation in the life of the Apostle Paul, and you'll find out the answer to that question. Okay. Once you become a believer, is it possible to not have the Holy Spirit within you? Well, I'll tell you what the Scripture says. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13... It says, when you believed or having believed, you were sealed, like putting a stamp, you know, locking it and saying, hey, this is under lock and key and nobody can get into it. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of your inheritance. So I understand that passage to indicate that when we believe, and remember what the Bible means by believe, we're not talking about intellectual assent, we're talking about when we trust Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit saying, you belong to me. And so the Spirit lives in us. So I think technically I would say believers in Jesus Christ, those who trust Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit in them as a seal, a promise of the future deliverance that we will have. Yes. It doesn't require another baptism. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, if people have a different, there are different views, and you know me, I like to just give you the different views. So I'm going to let you pick on this if you want to. Uh, basically, there are those who are of the opinion that no, there is not a second work, in other words, a water baptism, 
And then there's a Holy Spirit baptism wherein one might break out into speaking in tongues or something charismatic or miraculous at the time. There are those that think those are two separate events. They'll look at certain events in the book of Acts to substantiate that. There are others who would say that does not appear to be normative in the book of Acts. It appears that when one trusts Jesus Christ, you're baptized as a symbol, as Paul so eloquently expresses in the book of Romans, that we have died to the old man, we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's baptism, that uh, strongly symbolic action from all the way back in the Old Testament. And that as when we believed, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It does also does not appear to be normative in the, in the book of Acts that every believer is performing what we call miraculous gifts or charismatic gifts. Everyone has the Holy Spirit, as we just answered, but it does not appear that a normative experience is for everyone to be doing miraculous gifts. So Christians disagree about whether there is that second work of grace. I find it personally, I'm gonna give you an opinion here, but let's search the scriptures and let's, let's study it and see. I don't find compelling evidence myself in the book of Acts to indicate that there are necessarily two separate events, nor do I find it compelling that every believer must manifest this certain group of giftings. I think every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit, but not necessarily in those specific ways. So, but there are differences of opinion amongst Christians as about whether or not there are two baptisms, so to speak. Okay, in um, verse 2 of chapter 6, when it refers to the 12, um, is that referring to Stephen, or was there someone else who replaced Judas? Yes, I skipped that part. Remember we had 12, Judas didn't make the cut, got 11. I just skipped the part in Acts where they picked a 12th guy. We just didn't cover that part. But they drew lots to fill their number back out to 12. As you know from our study of the book of Revelation, 12 is extremely symbolic number for them, and so they added a 12th, and so it became the 12th apostle. Yeah, I just skipped that part. Well, let's talk about their solution. So they've got, you see what's going on and why the tension's there amongst the Greek-speaking Christians and the Hebrew-speaking Christians, and there's starting to be some tension. What's really novel is not that there's tension, not that humans are being humans and are not really conform to the image of Jesus Christ yet, and we bring some of our baggage and some of our biases with it. That's not surprising. What's shocking is what they do next. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, in order to serve. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. We'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They said that's a good idea. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this solution is very interesting. This event, by the way, is very likely the genesis for the office of deacon in the church. The word deacon doesn't appear here, but in Greek, cognates of that word. Uh, waiting on tables, serving, those are all forms of the word deacon. 
So they don't name them as a, you have the office of deacon, but this event is very likely generated the idea of the office of deacon. Many of you came, maybe came from churches that have deacons. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll read about Paul talking about establishing elders and deacons in the early churches to perform this kind of function. So this is the template for deacons. In other words, they're there to serve the people. They're there to take care of those kinds of problems. And that's the function that they uh, perform in most churches where you have deacons today. So this is probably the genesis of the office of deacon. What's really novel about this solution is not that they came up with a great administrative solution and said, hey, we're going to devote some people to that task. But as you look at those names, and I know this may not be obvious to you, but it's really obvious uh, if, you under, if you think of Hebrew names and Greek names, every one of those names is a Greek name. It's extremely likely that all seven of them were Greek believers, not Hebrew believers. That is amazing. We would have likely said, okay, fine, let's get a team together. And really, since the Greek-speaking Christians think they're being shorted by the Hebrew-speaking Christians, why don't we put three or four Greek-speaking Christians on this board and the rest here? All of them are Greek-speaking Christians. They're now charged with taking care of all of the widows. I know you stop and think about that for a minute. By the world standards, that's crazy. So we're going to let the people that were complaining and felt like they were shorted, we're going to put them in charge of it? Well, they'll probably just neglect the Hebrew-speaking widows. But that's not the way they do it in the church. They tend to appeal to what we are going to be, not what we are. Does that make sense? In a worldly sense, this is crazy. This is a terrible idea. But look what it says. They presented them, and the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. In other words... They solved that problem, and they solved it in a way that used trust. In other words, this was a very one-sided, unconditional solution. It's a radical idea. And it said, we'll let you take care of everybody, and we will trust you to not repay, neglect for neglect, not get your vengeance. We'll trust you to be Christ-like and go do this right. That is remarkable. And I think it's an interesting suggestion for us today is to put aside the human part and let's say, let's appeal to the Holy Spirit working in people to be Christ-like, not to be human. I'll tell you where this has a huge implication. I'm getting off track a little bit, but I want to go back to marriages for a minute because marriages are one of the places where our human nature flares up most dramatically. It is harder to be a Christian with your spouse than everybody else at church. You know that because you've done this. Just I, I've never personally done it, but I've heard of people driving to church on Sunday morning, having a big argument with their wife and kids, and then walk into church with a smile. Everybody act, kids, nobody mentions this. You know, and you walk in and we smile and we shake hands and we're so nice to everybody else. Church is over, we get back in the car, we continue our argument. It is harder to be Christ-like, I, I, I really believe this, with those who are closest to us and particularly to our spouse. And I think one of the most counterintuitive, really powerful ways to work on our marriage, obviously, is to become Christ-like, is to unconditionally, one-sidedly give to our spouse. Because here's our temptation, and this is what the world does. The temptation is this. It says, look, here's the deal, dear, if you will do this stuff that you're supposed to be doing, and by the way, do I need to point you to the scripture? This is what you're supposed to be doing. 
I will then do what I'm supposed to be doing, and here's my deal. Does that sound Christian to you? Now, that's a business deal. That's called a typical secular marriage. They don't tend to go well statistically. I would suggest that the, the model that we ought to just be bold enough and brave enough to try is, I tell you what, dear, we're having some difficulties, you have some needs, you're frustrated that you don't think they're being filled. I'm going to make this totally about you. That's what they did here. They said, I tell you what, we're going to go completely the other way. All of the Greek-speaking guys, you take care of everything. We trust you with that. To completely unconditionally say, I will put all of your needs ahead of mine. No bargaining, no trading. I've decided for the sake of Jesus Christ, I'm going to focus on your needs and I'll just trust that in the end, my needs get met, and if they don't, my God is big enough to supply it. That is a radical attitude. It was radical at the time, and I would argue that it will radically transform our relationships as well. I really want to challenge you to trust God with that. Don't trust your spouse. You say, well, wait a minute. You don't know my husband. He'll just take advantage of that. Yes, we're men. You, just, you know that. Uh, but my, seriously, my point is, is that's true. That might happen. But watch the transformative power of that unconditional love, that putting them first over time. I've seen it in my marriage from the receiving end. And if you're bold enough to try it in your marriage, I would just suggest the transformative power was great then. It's great now. Okay, end of sermonette. But I feel very strongly about that to trust the Spirit. In other words, go unconditionally give. That's what they did. It's so counterintuitive. It will remarkably transform your relationships. Well, that's the story of that early tension in the church. It's going to get worse in some different ways. They solved this problem, but this early body of believers is going to have even bigger issues coming. But Acts, at this point, turns just a little bit, and it now becomes the story of certain key individuals. It's not that the church as a whole isn't doing great things, but it's gotten so big that the narrative now wants to make some points, and it's going to use people to do it. And Stephen is one of those first characters that gets focused on. Stephen is a, a man whom we just met, and I just want to show you a few verses where it describes him. They said, first, we're going to choose these seven men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. They chose Stephen. He was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen was full of God's grace and power. Notice so let me just pause for a minute. What it doesn't say. Stephen had a master's degree from the OSU School of Restaurants. It doesn't say Stephen was a man who was type A and knew how to use his iPad and he got things done. Stephen was a good manager. Stephen was this. That's not what it says. It's really interesting to look at their criteria because why? What are they going to do with Stephen? They're going to put a lot of trust in Stephen. So what do they value? His skill at waiting on tables? No, his faith, his spirit. So that's who Stephen is. Stephen not only waited on tables, in other words, he not only took care of that, he also began to just be, do what every believer did. He began to go speak. Now remember, he's one of those Greek-speaking Jews. None of the apostles, by the way, they're all, grew up in, obviously, in Israel. Now, Stephen, who's a man full of God's grace and power, he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. 
These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or by the Spirit. Two things here. Very interesting to note. It's not just the apostles who are able to do miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. There are other believers. A moment ago I told you, I do not see any indication that it was normative, meaning it does not appear that every believer was engaged in doing miraculous signs, but I do want to tell you the scripture indicates there were more than just the apostles doing miraculous signs. In other words, the Spirit used certain people, actually used everyone in a gifted way, but used certain people with these specific miraculous gifts. And you'll see the same pattern. A miracle makes an opportunity for a message, and then you see growth happening. You see God drawing people to him. So Stephen was able to do these miracles. Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jew, and he's speaking to that community. When he talks about the synagogue of the freedmen, we can tell you about that, but bottom line, here's the point. They had the synagogues where they all spoke Greek. The apostles went to synagogues where they spoke Hebrew because that's all they spoke, not Stephen. He's one of those Greek-speaking Christians. He now becomes a messenger into those churches. It's as though we sent someone to the Spanish-speaking congregation because they speak Spanish and they grew up in that culture. And so now they become an advocate. That's what he was doing. These areas that they're from are kind of interesting. Uh, Cyrene over here is modern-day Libya in North Africa, and there was a large group of Jews there. It talks about Alexandria. We saw that city, huge concentration of Jews in Alexandria, and so some of them had come from there. The Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, Paul's going to do a lot of work there in, uh, in a little bit. That's where the churches, seven churches of Revelation are. Then Cilicia is not on this map, but it's right about there, and just inside Cilicia is a city called Tarsus. When we meet Paul, the future apostle Paul, next week, he is from Tarsus in Cilicia. Now, he speaks Hebrew and Latin and Greek. And by the way, for you Bible scholars out there, you'll notice in his letters, he spends quite a bit of time telling people that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I want you to understand why he's doing that. He's actually from one of these Greek-speaking areas. And so as he goes into the Jewish synagogues to evangelize, he's giving them his credentials. He said, look, unless you think I'm one of those second-class Jews, I want you to understand that I have all of the things of the Hebrew Jews. So now that you know that there was that division, you understand why Paul was saying some of those things in his letter. But this is where these particular people were from. They were all worshiping together in a little church, a little synagogue, and Stephen went into that synagogue and began to share the good news with them. He spoke in Greek. He picked up the Greek Bible and said, this is what I read since I was a kid, and starts reasoning from there. We still see that today. God equips different people to speak to different places. But I want to turn this a little, and I want to take it out of the realm of missionary. You're thinking, yeah, I know what you mean, Terry. You might, uh, for example, we have a lot of, in our college ministry, a lot of Rwandan kids, bright, bright young men and women who are in this country getting a lot of them engineering degrees of one kind or another, and they plan to go back, and their government wants these well-trained engineers to come and help build the infrastructure of their country. Many of them are Christians here with us for several years while they're doing it. They're going to go back and be uh, engineers in their country, and they're also going to be spreading the gospel. 
So we tend to think of it that way. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Terry. They used Stephen because he spoke Greek and he went into those synagogues and we might then see Rwandan kids going back to Rwanda. That makes sense. That's what missionaries do. Actually, I want you to think a little differently about that. I want you to think about yourself as being uniquely gifted by the Spirit to go speak the language, so to speak, of certain people. For example, some of you here are homemakers and you're in a circle of non-believers who do what you do. You share the same kind of life. You're rearing children. You, you know, some of you are realtors. Some of you are doctors. Some of you are petroleum engineers. Whatever it is that you are, when you leave church and go into your Monday through Friday world, you speak a language, so to speak. You're in a circle of people that you're actually pretty uniquely qualified to speak to. I'd like for all of us to think of ourselves as Stevens. In other words, equipped to go speak a language to a certain group of non-believers. We should all identify with Stephen. In other words, that God has uniquely gifted you. Now, I don't know if you're speaking in tongues. I don't know if you're doing miracles. My point is, you are taking the gospel using the language you know, the training you have, the friendships you have, your personality, your gifting. Every one of us is a Stephen. So I don't want you to see in this some unique person. Oh, yeah, that's what pastors do. Or no, that's what missionaries do. We're all Stevens who go back into our former walk of life and share the gospel. That's what Stephen was doing. Well, he preaches uh, some of the men secretly persuaded. They couldn't argue with him, but they said, I tell you what, we're going to get some people to say he was blaspheming against Moses. In other words, he said, we don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they took him in front of the Sanhedrin. They produced some false witnesses who said, hey, this guy speaks against the temple and against the law of Moses. That's serious stuff. And so he says, we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place. Remember, Jesus was accused of this too. He said, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, meaning I'll raise, be raised from the dead. But that was one of the accusations they made. Hey, you're saying things against the temple. Same thing against Stephen. And that the customs of Moses that were handed down to us. And so they accuse him of basically not being a good Jew and violating the rules. Well, his miracle gets him in trouble, but it gives him an opportunity to, to tell a sermon. I'm not going to read this to you. It goes from chapter 7, verse 2, all the way to verse 53. And it's a great little story of the history of the Jews. What Stephen does is he stands before the Sanhedrin, and he says, well, let me just tell you the history of, our, of the Jewish people. And he begins to recount right through history. It's a great little story, a, a synopsis of the history of the Jews, of the Old Testament. And at every point, how they weren't faithful to God. God did this for us, but we didn't stay faithful. Then he did this, and we had a golden calf and worshiped that. Then God was faithful and did this. Oh, but we were unfaithful. God sent a prophet. Oh, we killed him. And he concludes in verse 51. Listen to the end of this little talk. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who told you about the Messiah. And when he came, you betrayed and murdered him. You have the law, but you don't even keep it. Now I'm just going to tell you, you're going to get some emails after a sermon like that. I mean, it's just not going to go. You're going to get some comment cards that say, hey, 
ease up a little bit. So this is boldness. This is very blunt. And it gives you a flavor of how confrontational the gospel message is to the culture of the time. You, if you read this, you'd go, what if my pastor got up and preached something like that? It's like, I wouldn't tolerate that. I'm out of this place. In other words, very confrontational. And the good news of the gospel is confrontational. Remember we talked about Ananias and Sapphira? What a difficult story that is. And we said, one thing that teaches us is how seriously God takes sin in our lives. And the gospel wants to confront us with that. Not just to condemn us, in fact, to give us hope. But it's very hard, as I quoted to you before, Tim Keller, very concise, great little quote. He said, it's very hard to surrender to God when you don't realize you're at war with him. And so what's Stephen doing? He's saying, you need to understand that you have a problem. And then you can tell the good news that Jesus Christ made the solution. But he, he makes this confrontational thought. And look what happens. When they heard him say this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know about you, but I get some hope out of this because uh, I've preached some sermons that I think there was some gnashing of teeth out there, and now I realize that's probably a good sermon, right? They're gnashing their teeth. They're grinding their teeth. They're so angry. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and visualizes Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's exactly what Jesus said at his trial. Got him in a lot of trouble. Get Stephen in a lot of trouble. When they heard this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes. I mean, because they get hot throwing these stones. They took off their coats and said, hey, Saul, keep an eye on our coats. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. He fell asleep. It's a euphemism for he died. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. So we see that what's happening here is Stephen, preach, he does this, these miracles, then he preaches this confrontational message. This time there's no Pharisee to rescue him. No Gamaliel, because he's not only offended the Sadducees by talking about the resurrection, he's offended the Pharisees as well at this point. In other words, the gospel is an equal opportunity offender. It's going to convict all of us at some point in time. And it should convict all of us because it's our only hope of salvation. So Stephen preaches this. And then think about this. This is like the U.S. Senate. I mean, this is the rulers of the Jews, very stately, elegant uh, people. And they begin to grind their teeth, they're so mad, they cover their ears, yell at the top of their voices, grab this guy, drag him out there, and begin to kill him. And they do kill him. I mean, think of what anger was provoked in them. What you see happening here is something that, that we're going to see uh, again and again, is this idea, I told you about the idea of power. If you look at this, what you think is happening is the Jewish rulers have the power. They have the power to flog the apostles and send them out. They have the power to kill Stephen for speaking something that they don't like. In other words, what had he done? I mean, did he kill somebody? Did he not pay his taxes? No. He did a lot of good deeds. But what he said so angered them that it provoked this authoritarian response. Let me pause there for a second. You see those events unfolding in our world today. The gospel always is confrontational 
to the power of this world. The ruler of this present world, Jesus said, Satan, is very offended by the gospel. And he grinds his teeth and he covers his ears and he wants to take you out and stone you. In other words, the good news of the gospel. And I know we think to ourselves, how can anyone be angry at the good news that, you know what, we are not right with God. Our sin has come between us and God. And Jesus Christ died on a cross because he loved us so much to give us the opportunity to be right. What is offensive about that message? It was very offensive, wasn't it? Even to the point of killing him. And you see that in our world today too. The good news of the gospel offends the power of this world. And the power of this world tends to react in a very violent way. And we see that. You pick up a newspaper and you'll see it. You see the trends even in our country that you see provocation of power, of authorities toward this message. Not towards something you or I are doing wrong, but trying to silence this message. It was true then, and it's still true now. And I find some encouragement in that. In fact, we should probably be a little bit worried if the power structures of our world are comfortable with the gospel that we're preaching. I'm not saying we try to be offensive. In other words, we don't want to be offensive. We want to be loving. But our message inherently offends the power of this world. So if we're preaching it right, we should be provoking a response. Question? Why are we not seeing these kinds of miracles being performed today? Good question. Two schools of thought. Actually, I'm going to simplify this. There's more than two schools of thought. But basically, two schools of thought. One school of thought is, is uh, labeled cessationist, means ceasing, and it said there were indeed miraculous or charismatic gifts, you know, miraculous healings, speaking in other languages, etc. that those things happened then, but with the coming, typically people say, with the coming of the New Testament, the revelation of God that is now available to everyone, that those miracles, not all the gifts of the Spirit, but those charismatic gifts, ceased because they were not necessary. So there are Christians who, who sincerely believe that we do not have those gifts. They aren't used today because they are not necessary today because the Word of God is sufficient. Other Christians say no. There's, they find no compelling evidence for that in the Scriptures. They say, yes, indeed, we have the revelation of God, and that's a great blessing in the world, and the Word of God is indeed uh, the message of hope to the world. But that those miraculous gifts do still manifest themselves. Within that group of believers, you see a, a wide range of diversity. You'll see some who say, I think miracles do occur sometimes as needed, often in my view, as God chooses to use them, not as we choose to use them, all the way to the far side that every believer should be doing miraculous gifts. And if you aren't, it's a sign that you're not really a good believer. So amongst Christians who believe that miraculous gifts happen today, there's pretty wide variance of how often, how many, etc. So let me make a couple of observations for you. One is, it does not appear to me, you see as we go through Acts and, and reason for yourself, that even then every Christian performed miraculous gifts of the Spirit. So I would not think it would be reasonable, whichever your camp, that every Christian today would necessarily perform those kinds of gifts. I think we're all gifted by the Spirit, but not necessarily in that way. So I think that, in my view, I don't think the book of Acts supports the idea that every Christian, then or now, must perform those. That, I'm simply not persuaded by that example in the Scriptures. 
As far as whether or not miraculous gifts occur today, I'll leave you to reason through the scriptures on yourself. Our church, is com that is not a salvation issue for us. It's one that we might sincerely disagree on. There are Christians, though, that observe this, and I'm sympathetic to this point of view, is that uh, if indeed there are miraculous gifts in the world today, I, I very passionately believe the Scripture teaches, they work to the Holy Spirit's purposes and to the kingdom purposes, not to yours or mine. They don't work for Terry to get on TV, and pardon me if I'm being a little snarky about this, they're not for Terry to get on TV and have a great big ministry. They're going to further the kingdom of God in whatever way he chooses to do that. I think that the reports that we do hear of miracles, now some are going to email me and say, hey, miracles happen in this city all the time. Understand, but what we tend to hear in this way most frequently come from other countries. And some Christians think that God has a greater need for those signs to enable the message. Remember the pattern. The miracles didn't just happen in a vacuum. They always enabled the message. They always opened a door for the good news. It's not the miracle that caused faith in people. It's the power of Jesus Christ. It's God drawing people to himself. So I think if indeed there are miraculous gifts, you'll see them being manifested where God's purposes find them useful. For you and I, a lot of people will say, well, just show me a miracle and my faith will be even better. I would argue history does not prove that to be true. Just look at the history of the Jews. They saw an awful lot of miracles and it didn't take them long to backslide. You and I, have you ever had this deal where, God, if only you will do this, I promise I'll be good for the rest of my life? If you're like me, that lasted not quite a week, you know? And so my point is, those things fade. They really do. I find that we have everything we need to believe. So I'm not disappointed if God is not using miraculous gifts in our midst. It doesn't make me think in any way that God is any less powerful or that we're doing anything wrong. We, we have everything that we need. But Christians do have differences of opinion as to whether, whether and how much miraculous gifts are manifested today. So I'll let you kind of think that through. Watch as we go through the book of Acts. You're going to see some miracles, but I want you to think about how often you don't see miracles happening. Watch the Apostle Paul. He's going to do some miracles, but most of his ministry actually isn't based on that. It's, it's the Spirit drawing people to him. Make sense? Okay, so we'll keep talking about this. Some have asked, look, this would be a really good series if we just do some demonstrations of speaking in tongues or whatever. I think some of you have heard, I get tongue-tied enough, it sounds like speaking in tongues. It just isn't. Well, let me conclude this by saying this. I want you to watch what happens here. It looks like a bad time for the apostles. It looks like the authorities have the power. They had the power to punish the apostles. They had the power to kill Stephen. It looks like the overwhelming power of authority is going to stamp this thing out. I want you to watch what happens. God is going to take this catastrophe. The, the stoning of Stephen, well, let me just put it this way. That was a major depression for the church. It's like, okay, this is not good. I mean, nobody saw this as a good thing. I want you to watch in our next lesson how God does what he always does. He's going to take the world's power system. It says, we're powerful, you're not, you better do what we say, and he's going to flip it upside down, completely upside down. Wait till next week and then answer the question, who's really powerful here? And I want you to be encouraged by that because what the, what's going to happen to the church next week, as soon as we get back, when everybody finds out about Stephen, they are going to flee for their lives. They're going to leave Jerusalem like rats in a sinking ship. 
And you're going to go, wow, that's not good. But watch what God does with it. He's going to turn that upside down, and he's going to send his message into all the world. You notice, by the way, we got 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. How many missionaries have you heard? Jesus told them, you're going to take my word into Jerusalem, into Samaria. In fact, you're going to take my word into the ends of the earth. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. What are they doing? 20,000 of them sitting around in Jerusalem. So the authorities say, we're going to stamp you out and scatter you. And they say, look at that, we won. And God said, are you kidding? That's exactly what I wanted. I've got 20,000 missionaries now. And that's my charge for you. For this week, your job is to do what the early Christians did. Scatter and go tell the good news. You are Stephens, you are missionaries. Okay, try to be a little more polite than Stephen. I really don't want any of you killed this week. Get out there and consider yourself uniquely gifted to go tell the good news. This is what Jesus did for me. Why don't you come next Wednesday night? Maybe we'll see some speaking in tongues. Just kidding. I'll see you next week. <laughs>